Welcome to Scuttlebutt, uh, which if you don't know what that means, is a naval term relating to (laughs) rumors or happenings on a ship, is my understanding. I probably should have looked this up before describing it. Uh, But the goal of the podcast is to be interesting to talk about interesting topics uh, using history heroes and humor Uh, I am Zach I'm your host and your other host is Mike two hosts hosting so nice we're doing it twice and I wrote that down which is embarrassing but you know that'll that'll appeal to the dads of the audience yeah this week we're gonna talk about uh World War One, and then uh, we're gonna we're gonna dip into the world of what is it when the when we're when our minds sync up to computers the robots. Um, yeah, so we're gonna discuss the singularity, and uh, we're gonna go ahead and uh, drop in. Uh, the conversation has started, so we're discussing this, and and now. You're joining the conversation of Mike and Zach discussing singularity. So here's my um, my reason why I would not upload my consciousness to any sort of electronic device. You know, there's a little like user interface errors we had trying to get this program working. That would be a feature of your fucking consciousness. You'd be like, I need, I'm trying to remember this memory, but where is it saved? You know what I mean? Like, how do I drive this car? I got to find the right file. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but then it, what was the uh, uh, God, was it, there's some like cartoon where they could like they they like they wanted to learn Kung Fu and he just like pushed the button and then they learned Kung Fu. I just think that's that's impossible. That's uh, the Matrix. Is it the Matrix? Oh, it was the, <laughs> the cartoon little, The Matrix. Little movie known as The Matrix. The, yeah, it was a documentary series about Keanu Reeves. and. Uh, yeah. But that's I mean, that's impossible user interface. I sort of feel like I've got Alexa's everywhere in my house right now and it sort of feels like i've already done it done uh, downloaded your brain i guess how would we know like you wouldn't know if you if you have if you've done it already you would never know right that's very true i i have a pretty good argument for why we are living in a simulation do you want to hear it yeah i do thanks (laughs) that's why we're here this is what the people want (laughs) okay so if um let me start to see if i can remember how it goes uh, there are so it's if you can if you can see that it's possible to have a computer powerful enough to simulate an actual universe, uh, then whoever's running it has probably created more than one simulation. There's probably millions of that, thousands, millions, billions, whatever simulations running concurrently, right? So there's out of let's say there's let's say there's a million simulations. So if you there are a million possible simulations, but only one actual universe. So if by chance, if you were to pick out of a, a hat which you're in, the real universe or a simulation, the chances are far better that you're in a simulation than in the real world. So by like Vegas odds, boom! if you were a betting man, you would say, yeah, we're in a simulation. The house always wins, which is the simulation. So that would mean – so see, here's the part where I get really hung up. Uh, am I – like a, an avatar in this or are you like, who's in charge here? One of us could be in charge and not know it, I guess. Yeah. We're not, we're most likely non-playable characters. That's <laughs> I'm all right with that. I'm, that's not the worst thing anyone's ever said about me. So 
I'm totally cool with that. As the older I get, the more, the less I care about not being a non-playable character. (laughs) (laughs) Ideally, I'm just a a bush in the background that waves every once in a while. That's it. You can't screw it up. A farmer who just says, I got to get back to my livestock. I told Grace this over and over. My dream at this point is to... I just want to dig holes like an excavator. That's it. I don't feel like I don't want to, uh, people call me after hours and they need things. I don't want anyone to have to call me. Like there's no hole emergencies. No one needs an emergency hole dog. That's for sure. I think. Although, you know, you get in the business. <laughs> that's true. But when you're the top dog <laughs> and they need a hole dog, there's no escaping it. it. Oh man. Um, you, so the thing that you really know, actually, concerns me about you the simulation. What? Okay, go ahead. Hole filler in her. Probably less emergencies. Yeah, I don't know what that means. <clears throat> Holes just don't form, at, you know what I mean? Randomly. They do in Florida. <laughs> Good point. Dang it. There's like sinkholes all the Shit. time. Half the I didn't state think about is sinkholes. sinking. Yeah, you're yeah. right. There's like salt salt rock or something, right? What is Whatever it? Salt it is. stone? Yeah. Limestone, salt, maybe? I don't it could know. be, yeah. The thing that concerns me about being in a simulation is that in college, you told me that <laughs> this is a direct quote. Why I remember this. Uh, whatever the most disgusting thing is that you can imagine, the internet has done it like 10 times worse. (laughs) So if there's some super sentient being that's running this entire thing, there's something very gross. Like they're going to make you do something very disgusting, right? Because that's the person, like they want to drive the ship and and they're going to get weirder and weirder as time goes on because you get bored with whatever you're doing. That's, we should be grateful that we're in a really boring simulation. That's true. (laughs) This is like the Mormon. This is the Mormon simulation. Let's just watch these, this simulation we're in, I'm in a closet right now. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to a microphone. And oh God, this is the worst simulation ever. There's no torture. There's no... We could either be in the, I mean, so in all the simulation, there has to be the most pleasurable simulation and then the most painful simulation. We're like closer to the painful simulation. <laughs> yeah, I guess At least true. halfway there. I don't know. <laughs> this doesn't feel super halfway. pleasurable right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you do your World War One yeah. research? All right. Well, so as part of this podcast, you know, we have decided that we want to share the most current important topics that are affecting the United States, uh, you know, pop culture. And that's why Mike is going to tell us about mortars used in World War One. <laughs> Mike, tell us about mortars used in World War One. First off, why, why mortars in World War One? Okay, that's a great question. So I'm in a job situation in which I don't really have a lot of opportunities uh, for professional development, you know, so... Used mortar salesman? I'm a used mortar salesman. I uh, used to be used mortars and aircraft bomb salesmen and now i'm limited down to just mortars so i don't have oh, a lot of opportunity man. business is not good business is not good yeah all the jobs moved to china chinese mortars no um so i don't have a lot of opportunities so i basically chose for myself some research topics that are like in my job interest or my purview my job purview and that i wouldn't or normally have the opportunity to do research on and one of those was um civil war ordinance and as I started reading about Civil War, there's a lot of changes that occurred during that time period, and specifically, there were a lot of changes to artillery, and that got me thinking about um, uh, mortars and artillery and that kind of stuff. So, so what did they have in so, Civil War? Was just like cannonballs, right? And yeah. then there was, how did they blow up? I guess I didn't really understand that. I know that cannonballs can explode because they dig them up, right? And then yeah, so artillery, 
Yeah, they find them buried in the ground, so and they still present a hazard. Um, so every once in a while, you find an artillery uh, or uh, civil war, and especially in like South Carolina, like the area. But up until basically the middle of the 19th century, um, artillery didn't really change. It was all essentially the same. And it was just like your stereotypical cartoon cannon, whether you got a, a round cannonball that you load through the muzzle with a big ramrod. And then a flag wig. pops out that says boom. Yep, exactly. And a little flag comes out and says bang. Got That's it. it. Oh, That's shit. It's bang, not yeah. boom. Okay. Bang boom. <laughs> See, I'm not an expert in this. I'm not a mortar salesman. So <laughs> This is why you need a professional. Yeah. I'm learning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they basically fired a solid, what was called solid shot, which is a giant piece of lead, essentially. And in the middle of the 19th century, there are two big changes that occurred in artillery. The first was they, uh, was a change in the type of munitions they fired. So they started shooting what was called a, um, a shrapnel round, uh, which is basically a hollow sphere filled with gunpowder and little cannonballs, or little musket balls, rather. So they fire this thing downrange. And after it traveled downrange for a little bit of time, a wick would burn down and would detonate downrange and throw shrapnel or these little musket balls. So they had to light the wick before it, sh- it shot? Yeah. So the way the wick was lit was uh, you stuff that you load the cannonball in there. There's a propelling charge inside the cannon. And when that propelling charge goes off inside the cannon, it actually lights the oh, wick lights in the cannonball. So could that have got that would go off probably in the cannon on occasion, I would yes. imagine. Yeah, that was the problem with that was they um, it took them a long time to figure out how to make that fuse safe so it didn't just detonate inside the cannon or detonate right outside the cannon or something like that. And it took them a few years to figure that out, uh, but eventually they did. So that was the first major innovation was the shrapnel round, uh, which meant you could shoot, kill large numbers of infantry very quickly. And then the second was rifling. So uh, cannons up to that point were what are called smoothbore. So it was basically just smooth interior, and the, sh- and the round would just kind of go flying down range. But then they realized if they uh, rifled or carved a, a spiral inside of the muzzle, uh, they could get that round to spin, and it would travel um, in a straighter, more predictable line, kind of like uh, spin on a football. You know, it's like it goes in a much straighter line if you spin it rather than like throw it end over end. So at that point, they're moving beyond the ball and into more of a bullet shaped round or yes exactly so with the rifle they obviously the round ball doesn't spin super well inside the barrel so they end up with like a oval or, or like more it's, it's not tra- that obvious okay <laughs> that's why i'm asking questions mike a more traditionally shaped um projectile uh, or like bolt like a bullet shape and it took them a while to get there so they didn't really want to give up on the cannonball shape because they had all these foundries and factories that were designed to make these round cannonballs, so they would add like these wooden blocks called sabos to the end to make give them more of a of a longer bullet shape. But eventually, oh, they yeah. realized that this this is not worth it, and they made what you think of now as an artillery round, like a big, like That's a big exactly bullet. what I was thinking of as an artillery round. Yeah. So big big cannon didn't want to give up the business, and exactly. Yeah. So they were. That's so weird. Yeah. They had all those foundries, and they were literally they were cast. You know, they were just cast big chunks of lead or cast iron or whatever. Uh, so those are two big changes. And during the Civil War, um, direct fire weapons became so effective that basically, like, essentially, if you could be seen on the battlefield, you could be killed in principle, right? That was how accurate. And in the Civil War, they were still lining up. I mean, there was not really tactics and, yeah. like, formations in the same way that we think of them today. Correct. Yeah. So pre uh, rifled artillery. The the basic tactic was you would get infantry in a huge line, and they would march at each, arch at each other. Artillery would basically loosen up uh, or break up the arch, the infantry for, uh, defensive infantry formations as much as possible, 
the the offensive infantry would get close and then kill everybody with um, uh, bayonets. That was the basic concept. But when these and the from an artillery tactic point of view, what they would do is just launch this metal ball and try and skip it along the ground. So it would kind of skip through the formation and take out like a long straight line of infantry. And then the shrapnel round obviously changed that equation a little bit because you couldn't have quite as tight a formation because uh, these shrapnel rounds would land in the middle of it and explode and send fra- and shrapnel in every direction. So with the with the shrapnel round, you're saying so it's timed still though. So they have to. How do they figure out? Right. To so like make it blow up is near the shrapnel the... rounds had a very narrow range. Like the infantry had to be. I'll make up a number f- between like 400 and 600 meters. The shrapnel round would be effective because it had to burn for a certain period of time. So it still had limited. So they just wait till they were close enough. Yeah, exactly. So once they got too close, it wouldn't have enough time to burn. And they're too far away. It would have already detonated then, before it got into <clears throat> mortars. Yeah. I so, believe so basically, <laughs> with direct fire weapons becoming so effective, right? Like if you can be seen on the battlefield, you can be shot and killed with the cannon or a rifle. Oh, right. Um, so at this point, they're still they're shooting cannons directly at people. There's no right. indirect fire. They're not dropping it down on them. Correct. So the oh, that's terrifying. Jesus. Right. There's yeah. So let's go back and define some terms. I guess a direct fire weapon is one that you shoot, you aim and shoot directly at your target. And an indirect fire weapon is one that you try and lob around or piece of ordnance over something. You can't exactly see your target. You're just kind of shooting it up in the air and hoping it comes down on, on the enemy. It's exactly how we do uh, target practice in the Air Force. We just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> aim our rifles. and I think with the, with the small arms, it's called plunging fire. So <laughs> I always go out and practice plunging fire. Just shoot your gun That's in the air. T- hey, I qualified, so it's cool. Yeah, hey, that's all I need to do. Um, so... Uh, pre nineteenth, pre middle of nineteenth century, you had artillery that was primarily direct fire, and then your indirect fire weapons were like specialized uh, siege equipment used by specialized troops, like what they called engineers or pioneers, and they would be they would basically be drug out um, while an army was laying siege to an in place fortification. Like you know, you can imagine a fort back in the day. They would basically dig trenches up to it, then they would drag these gigantic, heavy pieces of uh, of artillery indirect fire weapons called mortars up to the walls and then lob explosive rounds over the walls hoping to hit a magazine or something like that so we're talking like 100 yards or less correct very short range and then these mortars are are extremely heavy because they have to send really really large projectiles because they want as many as much explosives as possible to get over the wall so you're talking like hundreds of pounds not something that can move with the infantry but can has to be specialized and like prepared position firing position has to be prepared and it takes many men to move it forward so f- several days later after establishing the firing point yep. they they're finally able to start lobbing launching 100 pound rounds over top of these walls so that was basically the mortar indirect fire weapons were relegated to that specialized like siege role uh pre uh middle of the 19th century and then when the direct fire weapons artillery and rifles and so on became so accurate um, there's really only two ways that you can defend yourself from a, a direct fire weapon. That's either cover or mobility. And in, in covers in, includes armor. And so cover and armor is basically anything that can stop a bullet, right? So a mountain, uh, a giant piece of steel, um, a valley, a big tree, whatever that, that's all cover, right? And the mobility is, is just moving faster than the enemy can aim at you, right? So at the time, in that period of time, the gold standard mobility was the horse, uh, which was not giving them enough mobility to avoid machine gun fire or accurate artillery fire. 
and it wasn't until the invention of the internal combustion engine where they could invent tanks that would give them a better the horseless the carriage. Horseless carriage, yeah, the, exactly. Where they could get enough mobility that they could actually avoid that type of stuff. Uh, and then the gold standard for cover were earthworks. So that's just digging a trench or piling up dirt uh, to form cover. And that's why during the Civil War and wars in that period, World War One in particular, all combat kind of bogged down in, into trench warfare because they didn't have the type of mobility that would allow them to maneuver around these really powerful direct fire weapons. So they just had to literally dig a hole in the ground to take cover from them. So this caused a, a huge change in, in artillery design, right? So basically this really, this really simple earthworks, just digging a hole in the ground would protect you from these very powerful direct fire weapons. And uh, it made a resurgence or really brought the indirect fire weapons mortars into uh, the forefront because now you had basically every encounter between infantry became a siege operation, if that makes sense. Because the infantry would just build their little field fortifications and now you couldn't hit them with direct fire weapons, so you had to have some sort of indirect fire weapon. So initially, there was really one big precipitating event, one major battle during what was called the Russo-Japanese War um, that really highlighted this fact for military thinkers at the time. Yeah, the Russo-Japanese War. And there was a battle of Port Arthur, which was a battle between the Russians and the Japanese for a port on the Pacific, which was uh, basically what had happened was the Russian Navy was moored in this port, and they were blocked in there by a, um, what do you call it when the Navy blocks people in? Blockade. Blockade. Yeah, blocked in by blockade, <laughs> and the Japanese were coming up the other side. It's like a, it aids it the aids Navy in blocking. Yeah. Blocks them, aids them in blocking? Block helper? Block helper. Yeah, block <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the Japanese were, were kind of sneaking up trying to take out this um destroy the uh, Russian Navy in port there and, and take the Russian port. So this is one of the first battles or one of the first wars in which uh, machine guns, repeating rifles, and these really fast firing, direct fire artillery pieces were common, right? And the Battle of Port Arthur bogged down in the trench warfare very, very quickly. Um, and so a lot of the military observers at the time realized the importance of mortars, indirect fire weapons, uh, but they were kind of most of them were still stuck in this mindset of the of mortars being specialized engineering equipment and not something to issue to frontline infantry. And it was really there was the Germans that really realized that hey, we can take this specialized piece of equipment, shrink it down, make it a little bit more mobile, and we can give it to our frontline infantry troops and help them in in maneuvering and um, taking out these mini fortifications that the enemy are going to build everywhere. How were they actually spotting this? Because we didn't really have aircraft at the time. So yeah. was it just a complete crapshoot? Yeah, just so the, the original um, aiming means was basically you'd have a yeah, an observer would kind of stick his head out, and then you would just hold the tube and kind of line up the front of it with what you, what you thought was going to be the right angle and then punt around downrange. So there wasn't a whole lot of science to it. And that's why that's one of the reasons the rounds were so large initially, because with less accuracy, you can have a larger round overcomes accuracy, right? Um, and it wasn't until they really figured out how to how to do our field our field was a yeah, spot artillery spotting that they could make these rounds a little bit smaller because it could be more accurate. Um, yeah, so you had the Battle of Port Arthur. Uh, a lot of military observers were like, yo, we really need to make some changes to this. Uh, the Germans were really the only ones that sort of took the lead on that. Um, everybody else was kind of left trying to fill the gap with a variety of 
improvised weapons or weapons they already had in their stockpile. So the examples that would be hand grenades. That's sort of an indirect fire weapon. Obviously, you can throw that. You can lob that in a big arc. Uh, rifle grenades, which were generally field improvised by frontline troops when they try and figure out how to take this hand grenade and, and launch it with a rifle. And then a bunch of weird stuff like catapults and, um, you know, like and trebuchets, tre- literally trebuchets. Yeah. And they, they took a bunch of like artillery from the Napoleonic era and brought it out and like <laughs> used it. You know what I mean? Cause they didn't have anything else. Right. So they're just trying to fill this. I feel like we should bring that back. That would be very intimidating to see like a giant wooden contraption and then getting it launched like pumpkin chunking. Just the sounds of the squeaking wood would be, yeah, the sounds of squeaking wood would be very intimidating. Like, what the fuck is going on? Guys are bringing, <laughs> they're confident enough to use wooden artillery. <laughs> yeah, trebuchet. Yeah, so a bunch of improvised stuff. The Germans kind of took the lead, but they, their mortars at the time were still like they looked like miniature artillery. They had carriages, they had recoil systems, they fired gigantic rounds, uh, and it was actually the British and the French that invented the first. The British, in particular, invented the first modern mortar. And the modern mortar is a really simple weapon. It's just literally a metal tube with a fixed firing pin at the bottom. It's got a base plate on it, and either bipod or tripod, and then some means of like aiming this thing like little making small uh adjustments uh, and the guy that invented the first modern mortar his name was sir wilford stokes and he got a knighthood actually for inventing this thing what he called the stokes mortar and it was a 3.2 inch in diameter which is the same diameter we use now at 81 millimeters and it was exactly what i described it was a metal tube with a fixed firing pin on the bottom and you would just take your round uh drop it down the firing pin or drop it down the tube and the round consisted of a, a warhead that was affixed to a, a tail boom. And in that tail boom was a, basically a shotgun cartridge. And around the tail boom is wrapped a bunch of powder bags. So when you drop this round down the tube, it goes down the primer on the shotgun shell, hits that fixed firing pin, shotgun shell goes off, ignites the propellant, and then sends the round down range. And you can vary the range either by changing the elevation on the tube or changing the number of powder bags you have attached to the tail boom. So it's really flexible, simple weapon that's very lightweight very easy to use and um this thing have fins and everything like how how advanced was this uh so the original ones were metal like literally metal tubes like a pipe uh metal pipe with fins on the end of it yeah and, and a really simple um time like a grenade fuse basically like you'd think of a hand grenade right like a spoon and a pin so you'd- so still timed this was not like a uh you know, there's, it's impacting and then. No, these are, yeah, these are like a hand grenade. So they would burn, have a seven second fuse on them, fly down range and hopefully go off. And it wasn't until it took a long time for, in fuse design for them to figure out how to make a reliable fuse for these things. It wouldn't go off in the tube and would go off reliably in a variety of different environments like mud, snow and dirt and that kind of stuff. That's the, the basic history of, of the mortar. You know, they started with. Uh, so England was the first one to sort of use this during World War One, or yeah, during World War One, yeah, the Stokes mortar, the guy invented it at the very beginning of the war. The British military, and he had no history in um, weapons design. I think he was just a he's like a pipe fitter or a welder or something. Kind of designed this thing and just like to shoot stuff long distance. He was like, "This would be cool." I mean, this <laughs> just a long long range shooting hobbyist. They invented it. It took the Brits a long time to figure out that they needed it. Uh, once they brought the Stokes mortar into use, it, get, it spread like wildfire because it's such a good design. The French. Actually, this guy named uh, 
Edgar Brandt uh, stole the design and he created this thing called a Brandt mortar, which is has some minor improvements to the Stokes mortars, particularly in, in how it's uh, aimed. Um, but the Brandt mortar and the Stokes mortar both came out in World War One and really defined the modern mortar. And it was a reaction to um, basically a, a countervailing force to the advantage provided by direct fire weapons. You know, they they forced the infantry into the ground and they said, well, we got to get at these guys in the ground. So they invented these highly mobile indirect fire weapons called the mortar. It's pretty fascinating that literally in the course of 30 to 40 years, we went from horseback lining up Mm -hmm. to aircraft, Mm -hmm. tanks, uh, cooled machine guns that could fire forever. Literally. Uh, And then indirect fire, which just didn't exist other than, like you were saying, you know, just haphazardly launching large pieces of, I guess, gunpowder over walls. Yeah, outside of the world of siege artillery, so back to field artillery, um, I, th- I can't remember what Napoleon called indirect fire, but he called it like... Indirect fire. <laughs> a, sh- a fool shooting at random or something like that. He had some very dismissive yeah. term for indirect fire. Yeah, classic Napoleon. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Not a fan. What about like uh, rockets and stuff? I mean, like the Chinese, you know, were using rockets for a long time for military use, right? Like, yeah, the Chinese, yep, the Chinese invented that. Again, that's sort of a, that can be either a direct or indirect fire weapon, depending on how you want to point it. But uh, they kind of disappeared for a long time. And then the Indian Empire used them for a while. And the Brits found out about them when their army went over there and fought the Indians and thought, well, geez, this is a pretty effective weapon. So they brought it back. Um, but that was, that's Yoink. been around since. Gosh, the end of the 18th century, at least in Europe, because, uh, you know, in the Star Spangled Banner, they say the rockets, red glare, talking about artillery rockets. And they were primarily, which I think is weird, primarily a naval weapon, I think because of their size, they were hard to, for troops to carry. So they would just put them on ships. But I feel like that would just catch the ship on fire. It does seem very dangerous. Wooden ships filled. I mean, the magazine was yeah. literally <laughs> just bags of gunpowder in the ship. And all the lights on the ship were... We're fire, there might, and that might be the reason why they weren't very popular. You know, they're like, "Chad, we keep burning our goddamn ships down." I mean, the Russians are still doing it now. I don't know if you saw they burned down their only aircraft carrier not that long ago. They, yeah, they sunk their only aircraft carrier in dry dock, which is a <laughs> classic Russian navy. Classic. Well, the, so not that long ago, India sank its own, I believe, its only nuclear-powered submarine in I did, dry dock yeah. as well. They had the hatch open and they put it underwater. <laughs> not to be outdone. The U.S. had a contractor who I believe was on some sort of substance or something, mm. and he started a fire in a submarine and did like $3 billion of, in damage to a submarine that was in uh, yeah. like one of the huge like electric boat shipyards yeah. and uh, destroyed a brand new classified ship because he was an idiot. Perfect. All right. 